0: Well, hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow Post-Surgical Fully Cyborg Podcast. I am now in possession of two, count them, two, artificial hips. And sitting right here on my desk beside me in a plastic tub is the hip that they removed, which I'm going to take this week to downtown LA and have cast in brass and turn into a cane topper and then bring down and have 3D scanned. Then I'm trying to figure out what to do. Maybe you have some ideas. Write in if you do. I'm trying to figure out whether I should cut the hip capsule away and expose the top of my femur and then do it again, have it cast again and scanned again. Uh, because right now it's kind of a smooth ball on a bone with like, you can kind of see where it enters the hip capsule, but you can't see that like Flintstones bone femur top that I was kind of thinking I would get. So what do you think? Do I mutilate my removed hip or do I keep it intact before I pickle it and stick it on the back of the bar in the backyard? You you tell me, maybe I'll do a Twitter poll. (laughs) Well, as you can tell, I am back. I'm not 100% but I'm recovering pretty fast. So I'm more or less off all the pain and sleep meds. And those are the biggest barrier to working because they cloud my mind during the day. I get some of that long COVID brain fuzz that we've heard so much about. I really sympathize with those people. And uh, the other thing that stops me from working, which is coming along faster than the last hip replacement, but not as fast as I'd like, is the incision itself. It's just when I sit up, I put pressure on the incision. If you imagine having like something that goes from the knob of your pelvis down to, you know, sort of four inches down your thigh, and then you sit up, it kind of pulls it apart, that incision. And so um, there's just a limit to how long I can sit up and work, and so I do a lot of work reclining on the sofa, and that kind of slows me down too. So those are the limiting factors, and they're coming along well. I'm nearly at the three-week mark, and um, once I hit the six-week mark, my surgeon says I can start swimming again, and that will be a great help. Meanwhile, I started writing again this week. Um, I'm making lots of progress on Picks and Shovels, which is the second Marty Hench book after Red Team Blues, which is coming out in uh, 2023. And Picks and Shovels will come out at the end of 2023, so I think probably like January and December. I'm also uh, nearly done with a short story called Moral Hazard that I'm writing for MIT Tech Review that's coming along really well. It's about homeless people generating automatic LLCs and then forming an industry association so that they can apply for bailout money during a financial crisis. And it's just about the perfect MIT Tech Review 12 Tomorrow story as far as I'm concerned. I've written a few of those. The other writing news is that we finally come up with a new title for the book that used to be called The Shakedown, the book that Rebecca Giblin and I wrote for Beacon Press about how creative incomes are compromised by monopoly and industry concentration and what to do about it. It was called The Shakedown. It is now called Chokepoint Capitalism, How to Beat Big Tech, Tame Big Content, and Get Artists Paid. Again, that's Chokepoint Capitalism, How to Beat Big Tech, Tame Big Content, and Get Artists Paid. I think it's a good title. I'm really excited. I think it rolls off the tongue there. And now that I'm able to sit up and do work again, I've got some upcoming speaking gigs, although they're all virtual. I'll do them all from here at home. The first one is that I'm appearing at Bosco, which is Boston's annual science fiction convention. I've been a guest of honor there before. That's February 18th to 20th. And then on February 27th, City Lights Books in San Francisco is hosting a launch event with a weekend of panels for a new book called Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. And I'll be on a panel then. And then finally, I'll be on the Philadelphia Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference, which runs April 19th and 20th. So all of that stuff is coming up. There's some more both in-person and virtual events that are on the horizon but haven't been solidified yet. I'll let you know about those as they come up. So the other thing that I wanted to mention is that I am writing an introduction to quite a remarkable book. Many of you will know who John M. Ford or Mike Ford was. He's a great science fiction writer, extremely eclectic, died tragically through some combination of circumstances relating to his family and his agent and many other things, his books went out of print for more than a decade, and now they're all coming back. And I'm writing the introduction to his 1980 debut novel, Web of Angels, which is kind of a proto-cyberpunk novel that has a lot of the moves that we saw in books like Neuromancer that came later. It's something of a forgotten classic, so that's been going great guns. I think I'll finish it after I finish recording this podcast and turn it into my editor. And speaking of the podcast, I do have a little backlog of stuff to read to you because I've been turning in my weekly medium columns and my monthly locus column while I have been out and recuperating from surgery. Kind of all I could manage for the first couple of weeks, but but I kept it going. And I'm going to read to you one of my medium columns. It's called A Bug in Early Creative Commons Licenses Has Enabled a New Breed of Super Predator. And as you'll hear, it documents the Run and I had with some extremely ill starred copyleft trolls. A bug in early Creative Commons licenses has enabled a new breed of super predator. Copyleft trolls, robo-signing, and pixie. From doctoro.medium.com. Here's a supreme irony. The Creative Commons licenses were invented to enable a culture of legally safe sharing, spurred by the legal terror campaign waged by the entertainment industry, led by a literal criminal predator who just went to prison for sex crimes. But because of a small oversight in old versions of the licenses created 12 years ago, a new generation of legal predator has emerged to wage a new campaign of legal terror. To make matters worse, this new kind of predator specifically targets people who operate in good faith, using only materials that they have explicitly been given permission to use. What a mess. Statutory Damages a tale of moral hazard i'm talking about copyleft trolls this is a phenomenon that's been on my radar since 2019 when metabrains a charitable nonprofit whose board i volunteered on for more than 15 years successfully defended itself against a $10,000 speculative invoice that we received from a guy who is widely considered to be a copyleft troll To understand how the copyleft troll scam goes, you first need to understand how the copyright troll operates. Start with this. U.S. copyright law provides for $150,000 in statutory damages for willful infringement. If you violate someone else's copyright and they can prove that you knew you were breaking copyright law, they can hit you for up to $150,000 even if they can't show that they've lost a dime in the process. Enter the copyright troll, who uses the statutory damages system to engage in highly automated, mass scale extortion. To turn troll, you need five things one, a law degree, two, a client who can lay claim to some kind of copyrighted work that might be reproduced online, three, a search tool that can identify copyrighted works as they are posted online, four, an automated speculative invoicing tool that sends legal threats and demand letters to anyone the system identifies as having posted a copy of your client's work. And five, a group of customer service reps who field complaints, ignore pleas of innocence, negotiate and collect payment, and cool the mark after the money is collected. So if you've posted a still from a movie to social media, or participated in an infringing BitTorrent download, or quoted a news article on a message board, you might someday hear from a copyright troll who'll send you an email demanding, say, $10,000 as a license fee for your use of their client's copyrighted work. If you don't pay, the copyright will threaten to take you to court demanding that $150,000 in statutory damages plus legal fees. The Depraved Creativity of the copyright troll. The 2010s were the decade of the copyright troll, as a small number of extremely prolific troll firms made tens of millions of dollars while ruining thousands of everyday internet users' lives. The copyright troll industry was a disgusting cesspool, and it selected for sleaze. The most successful copyright trolls were the slimiest, and it was only a matter of time until they went to prison it's really hard to overstate the creative depravity of copyright trolls. For example, one bunch acquired the rights to a library of pornographic videos and then secretly uploaded those videos to the Pirate Bay, then targeted downloaders with speculative invoices, threatening to expose their porn viewing habits in the process. Another bunch went even further. They uploaded gay porn to the Pirate Bay, but Labeled it as if it were top forty music collections, then demanded huge payouts in exchange for not filing lawsuits that would permanently link their victims' names with extremely explicit gay porn video titles in online searches. Creative Commons, permissioned permissionlessness. Twenty one years ago, Larry Lessig, Hal Abelson, and Eric Eldred and their team launched the Creative Commons, a nonprofit. That was supposed to create a DMZ for the copyright wars. I was there, both literally and figuratively. I suggested both Matt Howey and Lisa Ryan to Larry for the organization's founding team, and I worked with them and Aaron Swartz on the launch. My first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, that was the first creative work to use a Creative Commons license. A couple years later, I moved to London in part to serve as Creative Commons European director. Creative Commons was supposed to solve a serious copyright problem, namely that there were a lot of people who wanted to share their work with others, but there was no way to formalize that sharing agreement without spending vast fortunes on copyright lawyers to negotiate the sharing terms. Creative Commons' solution to this was a kind of robo-lawyer, a simple online tool that a creator could use to specify the terms on which they were willing to share their work, whether commercial use was okay, whether new derivative works could be made from it, And whether the resulting works were required to be shared under the same terms, and out would pop a valid copyright license. The license was in three parts a lawyer readable legal contract, a human readable summary, and a machine readable metadata block that would facilitate searching for CC licensed materials. CC and its sister organization, iCommons, worked with lawyers around the world. To create a set of compatible licenses that were enforceable under non-U.S. copyright systems and wove language into each license, making them all interchangeable. That meant that you could create a video that used stock footage from a French creator and music by a Canadian creator to create a short video that adapted a short story by a Japanese writer. This is objectively cool. It's also incredibly successful. CC licenses are used to facilitate all kinds of collaborative endeavor, from Wikipedia to Thingiverse to GitHub to Flickr. Anywhere people gather with the desire to share and build on one another's work, CC license makes that possible without spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on licenses. But the drafters of the Creative Commons licenses made a small oversight, one that was not rectified for 14 years after the project's launch. That oversight has given rise to a new kind of copyright troll, the copy-left troll, a copyright predator that exclusively targets people who haven't violated copyright. Like I said, what a mess. What an awful, awful mess. Crossing the T's, they get you with the fine print. The first three versions of the Creative Commons license contained a small, significant oversight, one that now exposes millions of people to effectively unlimited legal risk. The original version of the CC license stated that the license would, quote, terminate automatically upon any breach, end quote. That meant that if you failed to live up to the license terms in any substantial way, you were no longer a licensed user of the copyrighted work. Any uses you had made of that work were no longer permitted under the license. So, unless you had another basis for using it, for example, if your use qualified as fair use, then you are now infringing copyright. Recall that willful copyright infringement carries a statutory penalty of $150,000. Those two facts automatic termination on breach and statutory damages of $150,000 created the copyleft troll. Copyleft trolls are a mix of entrepreneurial individual extortionists and law firms that actively recruit would be extortionists with a pitch that's very similar to the copyright trolls come on. Sign up with us, and we'll find people who made minor errors in their use of your Creative Commons works and then send them a speculative invoice for a license on threat of a copyright lawsuit that could run them 150 grand plus legal fees. We'll split the take. It's even more of a pure predator play than the copyright troll racket, because the targets of these extortion demands are people who understand correctly that they are allowed to use the work they are being threatened over. The basis for the threat isn't that they infringed copyright. Rather, it's that they made the equivalent of a typo, like failing to dot an I or cross a T. What's more, the Creative Commons license has pretty technical, if lightweight, administrative requirements that are easy to get wrong. Specifically, all CC licenses, save for the public domain dedication, require that users name the creator, either as identified on the work or as noted in instructions to downstream users, provide a URL for the work, either as identified in the work or as noted in instructions to downstream users, name the license, provide a URL for the license, note whether the work has been modified get any of this attribution wrong, and you're potentially a copyright infringer and looking at $150,000 in damages. Creative Commons users really don't get this by and large, neither the technical requirements for attribution nor the potential risk of getting it wrong. I've posted more than 28,000 photos to Flickr under very generous CC licenses, and I'm constantly finding users who have failed to correctly identify them. Like, I've repeatedly emailed the contact address for a site called FinTechZoom to request that they fix the attribution on a photo of mine that they used, and all I get is crickets. I see that failure to correctly attribute as a minor annoyance, but copyleft trolls see it as a payday. The Honeypot. Weaponizing Administrative Ignorance. Given the dismal state of attribution literacy in the world, it's inevitable that anyone who uploads a lot of works under Creative Commons licenses will get a lot of incorrect attributions. If you're a copyleft troll then, all you need to do is generate a bunch of works, slap superannuated Creative Commons licenses on them, upload them to a popular CC repository like Flickr or Wikimedia Commons, and wait for your prey to make minor attribution errors then send them invoices for thousands of dollars on threat of a $150,000 statutory damages claim. Like the copyright trolls who actually baited people into committing copyright infringement, copyleft trolls aren't content to passively sit by and wait for small textual errors to monetize. They actively seek to create those errors. Take Marco Verch, who might just be the most prolific copyleft troll operating today. Verch hires low-wage photographers overseas to create work-made-for-hire photos of common stock images, often responding to current news hooks. He posted a wealth of stock images of PPE and other medical images during the first wave of the pandemic. Verch's images are licensed under CC Attribution 2.0, a license that was produced in 2005 and superseded in 2007. This license application has to be performed manually, because Creative Commons no longer offers tools to apply this license to new works. The 2.0 license has the strictest attribution requirements, making it easy to slip up. Virch uses an automated tool to scour the web for out-of-compliance attribution strings, and then he pounces, sending legal threats with demands of $250 and up. He says the money this brings in allows him to work a four-hour week and focus on his hobby, running. The images whose work he polices are created through gig work platforms like Upwork, in a largely automated process that simply takes top headlines from international news sites, then offers small dollar commissions to gig photographers to create photo illustrations. These are then used by unsuspecting and naive users who get whacked with Virch's speculative invoices. In at least one case, paying Virch's ransom was so backbreaking for a small Dutch charity that it closed its doors forever. Timely photo illustrations are excellent bait for a copyleft troll's trap, but there are other tactics for the enterprising copyleft troll. Take Larry Philpot, a country music photographer who has pivoted from merely selling photos of performers to media outlets to posting these photos to Wikimedia Commons with a very specific non-standard attribution demand then sending letters demanding large sums, $10,000 in the case of Metabrains, to forestall a $150,000 damages award for anyone who misses his fine print. Philpott's 150-plus copyright suits have angered federal judges to the point where more than one of them has called him a copyright troll. They're wrong, though. Philpott is a copy-left troll. Copyright trolls target people who know, or should know, that they're not allowed to use or copy a work, Copy left trolls target people who correctly believe that they're allowed to use a work, but who make minor administrative errors. They picked the wrong guy to mess with. All of this was something I understood in an abstract way, but didn't devote too much thought to until I was targeted by a copyleft troll. On January 4th, I received the following email From Pixie Case Management, resolution at pixie.com. Subject Second Notice. Unauthorized use of image, case 2 592 Cory Doctorow, Canada, by email, doctorow at com. Second notice, unauthorized use of Mr. Stojkovic's image, case reference 2 592 January 4th, 2022. Attention, Cory Doctorow, you were previously notified of an unauthorized use of Nenad Stojkovic's images on your webpage. To date, we have not received payment for your license fee. Details of the unauthorized use are set out in the attached unauthorized use report and evidence report. Please refer to those documents and the enclosed FAQ guide if you have any questions or require further clarification regarding why you received this email. Payment can be made through our secure online portal at the following URL and alternate payment arrangements are available to you in the attached PDF. In the event that resolution with a fair license fee is not possible, our next steps are to forward this matter to our partner attorney to secure the highest fees recoverable for copyright infringement and to commence legal proceedings. Should legal escalation become necessary, this licensing offer will no longer be available. Kind regards. (coughs) case manager, Pixie case management team, phone number, address, email, uh, please note, blah, 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 private and confidential. This email, its contents and blah, blah, blah are private and confidential. Any disclosure, copying unauthorized use, blah, blah, blah is prohibited. If you receive this message in error, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of things wrong with this email. A lot. Here's the use that I was being threatened over, Nenad Stojkovic's picture of a hand clicking on a mouse. If you visit that page, you'll see that I credited Stojkovic, provided a link to the full res image, named the license, and linked to it too. I did that in multiple places, both in the Twitter thread and in the alt text of the image. I mean, of course I did. I was there when Creative Commons was born. I was the organization's European director. I keynoted an iCommons conference where this very subject was under discussion. What's more, Flickr, where Stojkovic posted his image, was founded in part because I asked them to. And I served as an advisor to the company when they set up their Creative Commons licensing system. So this is beyond copyleft trolling. They're not threatening someone who made a small attribution error and was technically in violation of their license— Rather, they sent repeated threats, I missed the first one, to someone who correctly attributed their client's image. I am an attribution stickler. Each and every time I use that image, I correctly attributed it. What's a pixie? And why is it sending me legal threats? Sharp-eared listeners will have noted that the legal threat I receive originated from pixie. What's pixie? According to their website, they're, quote, an online platform for creatives and image owners to discover where and how their images are being used online with a global and growing network of 25 expert legal partners and law firms and investment and support from leading North American and European investors and partners. I've heard from photographers who use them for straight ahead copyright enforcement, catching commercial users of their pictures who published their photos, profited from them and never asked for permission and paid for a license. Maybe all that's true but they're also copyleft trolls. Remember Marco Virch, the runner who works for four hours a week, who uses an automated process to commission photos from gig workers in poor countries, that he uses as bait in a copyleft racket that victimized more than a thousand people, and even put a charity out of business for making a small textual error in their attribution string? Pixie provides Virch's U.S. legal representation, and has filed dozens of suits on his behalf they wanted $600 from me. Do as I say, not as I do. Pixie's position, in other words, was that I made a minute inconsequential error, and as a result, I owed their clients $600, and if I didn't pay, they were going to sue me for $150,000. But Pixie made a gross and extremely consequential error. Actually, a whole passel of errors. First, and most importantly, they were wrong. I had in fact attributed their client's image correctly. That fact is obvious to anyone who checked, and what's more, it's clearly visible in that supercilious evidence report they sent me. The errors don't stop there. For example, they addressed their email to me as if I lived in Canada. I haven't lived in Canada since 1999. When I pointed out these errors, I got an email from them apologizing, and an email they addressed to Colin, not Corey. These are precisely the kinds of errors that Pixie's lawyers tell judges should lead to millions of dollars in statutory damages. Pixie does not care about copyright. The point of a system is what it does. Pixie sends speculative invoices to people who correctly understand that they have the right to do what they have done, threatening them in order to obtain license fees that they shouldn't owe or don't owe. When you put a Creative Commons license on your work, the explicit message is, I want you to reuse this, not, I am a pedantic asshole with a fetish for well-formed attribution strings the point of CC is not to teach the world to write attribution strings. It is to facilitate sharing and reuse. If you are a good faith user of CC licenses, then your response to an incorrect attribution string should be a request to correct it, not a threat to sue for $150,000 in statutory damages. If you send threats instead of requests for correction, then you are a terrible person and you should feel really bad about yourself. The point of Creative Commons licenses is to allow copyright holders to exercise their copyrights, specifically to exercise their copyrights in a way that facilitates sharing and reuse. If you are a lawyer who responds to minor CC license errors with legal threats instead of requests for correction, then you are a predator in violation of your own code of professional ethics, and you should be shunned by your peers for bringing the law into disrepute shame on you. No, really, shame on you. In case there was any doubt that the purpose of Creative Commons licenses is to facilitate sharing and reuse and not speculative invoices and lawsuits, it is this. In 2015, the CC organization released the current licenses, version 4.0, including a Cure provision that gives people who make attribution mistakes the legal right to a 30-day grace period after notification of the error to make it right. If Pixie cared about enforcing photographers' copyrights, they'd stick to actual copyright infringement, not extracting money from minor administrative errors. Pixie is something of a black box. For one thing, all their legal threats are sent pseudonymously, signed with generic first names. My first response from Pixie, the one that called me Colin, was signed by possibly a I found on LinkedIn. A follow-up email apologizing for the quote internal oversights that led to me being contacted, contacted in this case is a euphemism for repeatedly threatened, was signed by possibly a I found on LinkedIn. To put it bluntly, this is a very bad sign. Legitimate legal correspondence is signed by actual named parties. It is not conducted on a first-name basis. Even worse is what B**** put to me. Our clients submit cases of unauthorized use to us for review, and it's up to the case manager to individually review and check whether there was a claim for financial compensation in the submitted case. In this specific case, the case manager did not take the time to fully review the scope of the use before making a decision to accept the case and send a license fee request. I also note that the case manager incorrectly addressed you by name in this case. This is not the high-quality service that we strive to provide to our clients in their fight against image theft. We are taking this opportunity to review our case handling processes and see how we can provide additional support and training to our licensing team to avoid such occurrences in the future. We have withdrawn and closed the case and have notified our client about the reasons for doing so. Please accept our apologies for the contact and thanks for your time and attention. There are two giant flashing warning signs in this apology. The first is that claims that they only threatened me because Nenad Stojkovic told them to, and that no one from Pixie actually investigated the matter before they threatened to sue me. This is not something a law firm should do. In actual law firms, even sleazy bottom feeders, but especially reputable firms, legal correspondence isn't just reviewed by case managers or other glorified customer service reps legal correspondence is reviewed by a lawyer or other legal professional. Legal threats are always overseen by a lawyer. If you ever hire a lawyer to work for you and their office sends legal correspondence to third parties on your behalf without having someone with a formal legal credential review it, you should fire that lawyer and lodge a formal complaint with your state bar association. Speaking of hiring lawyers, let's talk about the other warning sign in that email. Did you see how threw her client under the bus? She says that her company sent me multiple legal threats, not as the result of an automated process gone wrong, but because their client, Nenad Stojkovic, demanded that they do so. It is my opinion that this is not true. Pixie's own marketing materials describe its processes. The company sends bots around the web looking for its client's images. They figure out who posted those images. Then they send legal threats to those people. I think that's exactly what happened here. I asked if that was the case, I also asked her if Pixie's legal threats were supervised by counsel, and who that counsel was, and where they were licensed to practice law, and she sent me a terse note referring me to the company's website. Needless to say, the website brought no clarity to any of this, and Barbara didn't reply to my follow-up email. There's one other party that could shed light on this. Nenad Stojkovic. I've contacted him multiple times through his Flickr account, but never heard back. Mr. Stojkiewicz, if you have any clarity to bring to this matter, please send me an email. I'm at dracraphound.com. Just to be clear, here's what I think is going on. I think Pixie runs a robo-signing mill, a system where legal threats are generated and dispatched without due care or legal supervision through largely automated means. I think they're not in the business of protecting copyrights. They're in the business of terrorizing the public into sending license fees to them, which they split with their clients. Creative Commons invented a robo lawyer that did good, made it easy for copyright holders and users to reach agreements with one another. I think Pixie has created a robo lawyer whose purpose is to terrorize innocent people into paying money for minor administrative errors. Pixie, the same goes for you as goes for Mr. Stojkevic. If you want to actually answer my questions about any of this rather than stonewalling, send me a line. Remember though, It's Corey, not Colin. And I haven't lived in Canada in this millennium. Stop manufacturing ammunition for copyleft trolls. The misery that copyleft trolls inflict on the world is all the more perverse because they rely on CC licenses for ammunition in their campaigns of legal terror. What's more, there are billions of CC works with old licenses hanging around out there, If any of those creators ever turns troll, then anyone who recently used their work with a malformed attribution could face legal threats. The statute of limitations for copyright infringement is mercifully three years, which reduces the danger that some entrepreneurial copyright lawyer seeks out clients in order to go for decades-old uses. Everywhere CC licensed works are hosted, the pre-4.0 versions of Creative Commons licenses, the ones without the cure provision, should be disfavored what would that look like? 1. Upgrade on upload. Anytime someone tries to upload a CC image with a pre-4.0 license to repositories like the Internet Archive, Wikimedia Commons, Thingiverse, or GitHub, they should be asked if they are the creator, and if so, should be prompted to upgrade the license to the current version. 2. Upgrade in place. Every repository that hosts CC work that carries pre-4.0 licenses should send an email to every account, urging them to opt into a process to upgrade those works immediately to the latest license. 3. Warnings. Every repository that hosts CC works that carry pre-4.0 licenses should place a prominent warning on every page that includes those works, explaining that the work uses an outdated and disfavored license and that a failure to correctly attribute it could attract a $150,000 statutory damages award. 4. Automated attribution. Every repository that hosts CC works should have a one-click system to create an attribution string for each of the works it hosts, which is transferred to the user's clipboard. Thankfully, some of this is already underway. The Creative Commons organization has published a new set of principles for license enforcement, and I'm told they're about to release further materials that will make it clear that trolling is illegitimate and counter to the spirit of the license. And the CC Image tool that they recently transferred to Automatic has an excellent attribution string generator. That tool still needs prominent warnings on images with old licenses, though. Flickr, too, is finally moving on this. Flickr, you may recall, was bought by Yahoo and run into the ground for more than a decade, then transferred to Verizon for further malign neglect. Today, it is under new management by SmugMug, who are slowly but surely digging out from under the technological debt left behind by Yahoo and Verizon's mismanagement. In correspondence with Flickr management, I learned that they are planning to implement all the measures I outlined above: one click upgrading warnings on 2.0 licensed images and automated attribution generation. Mercenaries have no conscience. Part of me feels bad for Nenad Stoikovic. Assuming I'm right and he didn't personally insist that I be sent repeated baseless legal threats. I know what it's like to be ripped off online there are so many scammers out there. Not a month goes by without someone uploading one of my books to Amazon, claiming it as their own, and selling it through the Kindle store. On multiple occasions, scammers have tricked narrators into recording entire audiobooks of my novels for Amazon's self-serve ACX platform with the promise of a revenue share. Of course, this is a real and substantial violation of my CC licenses, which prohibit commercial use of my novels, and so I get them taken down, and the poor narrators are left holding the bag. The people who pull these scams are remorseless sociopaths, and I too would like to hold them to account. But if you hire mercenaries to hunt down copyright infringers, you share the blame when they go after innocents. You set that landmine, and you have some responsibility for the legs it blows off. The reality is that the automated enforcement tools that Pixie uses will always generate false positives, and the people who operate those tools have no incentive to look too closely at the accusations they generate. False accusations merely terrorize random strangers, who can't punish you in any way except perhaps by embarrassing you. Stojkovic is an individual photographer in Serbia. It's possible he just hasn't been around this kind of operation enough to anticipate this outcome. But there are plenty of others who should absolutely know better, who keep hiring fishermen to hang out their tuna nets without regard to the dolphins they know they'll catch. Take HarperCollins, one of the four largest publishers in the world, and Penguin Random House, the largest publisher in the world, in the process of acquiring Simon and Schuster. They definitely should know better. And yet, HarperCollins and PRH hired Linkbusters, a quote, anti-piracy company, to send legal notices to Google in order to flint the internet of pirate editions of their books. Disclosure, I have books in print from both publishers. You can probably guess what happened next. Linkbusters' automated process misidentified the book reviews at Fantasy Book Critic, a non commercial site whose volunteers have reviewed over 1,000 books in its 15 year history. Linkbusters, acting on behalf of HarperCollins and PRH, lied to Google and claimed Fantasy Book Critic was full of infringing material, and Google deleted the site, which was hosted on its blogger platform. Linkbusters is culpable here, obviously, but HarperCollins and PRH must shoulder part of the blame. Fantasy Book Critic embodies millions of hours of volunteer labor from their own best customers, all in service to promoting their books. HarperCollins and PRH knowingly put those volunteers and every other online book lover in harm's way. Ironically, the one place where reviewers can be certain that they won't face capricious removal thanks to off-the-leash mercenaries employed by giant publishers is Goodreads, the monopoly review platform owned and operated by Amazon, which serves as a powerful funnel that drives dedicated readers to Amazon, strengthening its commercial advantage over HarperCollins and PRH. The good news is that Fantasy Book Critic is now back online because authors and readers flooded Google with complaints and pleas. This is generally the only way to get Google to address its own mistakes, and obviously it doesn't scale. It could get much, much worse. Rights holder groups are backing a copyright office plan to make this kind of robo signing into law, forcing all online platforms to institute filters that automatically remove material that an algorithm finds to be infringing without human oversight or judgment. It's a recipe for a world where the mercenaries are robotic, remorseless, and act with utter impunity. When a first-name-only pixie rep calls you Colin and threatens to sue you for $150,000, at least you can call them out publicly. But when the robo-signers are baked into every public forum, even that small measure of accountability is denied to you. All right, then. Thank you very much. I will try and record next week. My kid has an athletic competition, so maybe not. But um, we'll see how it goes. I'm really glad to be back on mic. I hope you had a good month or so while I was off, and I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Cory Doctorow Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike, US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context... This song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time, self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.